We're talking about tragedy, and uh, we're talking about bad things happening to good people, good things happening to bad people, and, and kind of how all that works and how we're supposed to respond to that. And specifically, we're studying a man named Job. Some of us have been studying Job for the past five weeks now, and uh, it's really easy after five weeks of, of talking about blackish pus and, and the things that are going on in Job's life to kind of just, just kind of just forget that it's really bad for him. It's easy to kind of disconnect from the story and forget what a horrible situation Job is dealing with. Especially given the fact that Job lived in a different part of the country and he lived thousands of years ago, it's really easy to emotionally just remove yourself from the story of Job the longer that we talk about it. But I think it's important for us to stay connected to this man and his story. Let me, let me just tell it to you one more time here, quick version. Job has everything going for him. He has his health and he has power in his community and respect in his community. He has a, a good family. He has all the money that he can possibly need. Things are going extremely well for him. And the natural disaster and bad people come along and they take all of that from Job. And then Job gets a, a horrible, horrible skin disease. Now I think that, that when we talk about tragedy, usually tragedy is really just the loss of something. Right, and, and, and I think when we look at the life of Job, we can see kind of four categories of things that we lose when tragedy strikes. And so if you just think about the life of Job, you can kind of see the things that we deem as tragedies. Uh, one thing is the loss of, of financial security, right? I mean, we can, we can deem that a tragedy in some ways. If it strikes our country, it's a really big tragedy, right? But if it strikes individually and you don't have enough to pay your bills or to have food, then, then that's a personal tragedy. Another thing is the loss of our health, right? When somebody gets cancer, we, we know that that is a tragedy. When somebody is struck with a horrible disease like Job's, that's a, a tragedy. And so the loss of health is a, another form of tragedy. Uh, the loss of, uh, of a loved one, of course, is a tragedy. Most of us have, have experienced that in some way. And when somebody dies that we're close to, that we love, uh, we know that we have lost something great and we know that it's a tragedy. And then the loss of respect and, and power is another one. And, and that kind of gets wrapped up in those other three things sometimes. But, but, but the loss of, of respect and honor within a community, with your friends or whatever it might be, that's a tragedy. Sometimes we bring that upon ourselves. Sometimes it's outside sources. But that can be a tragedy. And in, in the story of Job, we see all four of those, right? I mean, he's lost his health, and he's lost his wealth, and he's lost his respect, and he's, and he's lost his, his own children uh, to death. And, and so we see uh, an epic tragedy, a, a massive tragedy. And, and the truth is, even in our modern context, if we can uh, maybe hit closer to home, we know that when more of those things than one are taken from us, that is when we consider it to be a great tragedy, whatever that means, right? And so if our health is taken from us and somebody that, that we love dies, that, then we look at that and we say, that is a tragedy. Or if somebody loses their health and they lose their job, then we look at them with pity and think, oh, they're going through such a horrible thing. And so when these losses come into our lives at multiple levels, that is when we really start to see tragedy. Uh, last uh, two weeks ago now, I guess, uh, a co-worker of Bryn, her, her name is Mary, 
got a phone call onto her work line, and immediately she just broke down and, and started crying, sobbing, in fact. And and turns out that what she was told on the phone is that her grandson, a man named Alex, who uh, I would encourage you to pray for as, as we go into uh, this next week, uh, is serving in the military. And the company that he was with, uh, one of the men stepped on a landmine. And it killed about three men, and he was the closest one to the blast of the people who survived. Parts of his legs were blown off, and when Mary got that phone call, they weren't sure if Alex was going to live. And so Alex is over in, uh, he was over in Germany. They're actually flying him back this week, so he's that stable, but keep him in your prayers. And, and so Alex is dealing with tragedy on multiple levels, right? And, and he's coming home, and, and here's the, the crazy part. People are filling up Alex's Facebook page with, with hatred, saying it's because you're over there fighting and it's because of war that this happened to you and this came upon you. And so we see in the story of Alex the loss at all four of those levels, right? I mean, he, he loses his friends and the people that he is serving in the military with. And, and there's probably not much more outside of Christ and the family, a, a stronger bond than that type of service together. And he loses those friends. And when he comes out of his comatose state and starts to, to be more coherent, he's going to have to deal with the loss of loved ones. He, of course, has lost his health. He's going to have to live the rest of his life without parts of his legs. He's going to have to figure out how to deal uh, with not having the legs that he always had and being the strong person that he was. Probably won't be able to work in, in the way that he would have liked to have worked. And he's already lost respect, even though he didn't deserve it at all. He has lost the respect of people that apparently at least call him Facebook friends. And so we see in this tragedy of Alex something similar to what Job is facing. It's just a loss of epic proportions. It's a tragedy. As we've been studying the book of Job, we see that, that he loses those things. And then for the majority of the book, from chapter 4 to about 37, Job has to defend himself to his friends saying, Look, I didn't deserve this. It's not because of some gross sin in my life. It's not because I've turned my back on God. There is no reason that I am facing this. And the friends look at him, if you've been following along, and they say, Well, Job... It is because of something that you've done. And what you need to do is you need to live your life for God. You need to give your life back to God and He will make everything better. I, last week, Jory briefly talked about chapters 32 through 41. and uh, Excuse me, 22 through 31. And, and I, I, I just want to touch on them again and give you a little bit more of a broad kind of picture of what happens here. The argument continues, but the argument builds. And you can tell in the tone, if you've read it, that they're starting to get more angry. We've all been there in arguments, right? Starts off, people are being nice, making logical arguments, trying to outwit each other. And then somewhere in the middle of those arguments, it's like a switch is flipped, and all of a sudden it's name-calling and it's yelling and the voices are going up. And you're not trying to win by logic anymore. You're just trying to win by being louder and meaner, right? We've all been there. And that is what we see in, in chapters 22 through 31. Eliphaz, the man who speaks in chapter 22, looks at Job and he's sick of speaking in generalities and saying, Job, I know you've done something. I know you've done something. And so he just starts to say specific things that he has no evidence for. Hey, Job, you are taking away the strength of orphans. That's pretty bad, right? Like, hey, you're being mean to people that don't have dads. 
I mean, that's just, you're just calling people names at this point. And then he says, hey, you, the widows, you're just treating them horribly. And you've never helped anybody in your whole life. And you're a bad person. And he starts throwing out these specific allegations against Job for which he has no basis. He doesn't even live by Job. And so he's just throwing these things out. Now, I just want you to notice how bad this is. And, and, and we see in Job's response, as Job becomes more passionate and adamant about, about defending himself, that, that Job's reputation is on the line. My dad always taught me growing up that the reputation is one of the few things that you can control. If you, if you do something to blow your reputation, it's going to be really hard to get that reputation back. But if you work hard to have a good reputation, most of the time you can maintain a good reputation. But here, Job's friends, with no reason at all, are trying to tear down his reputation and Job sees the importance of it. Just pause there and, and think about that for a second. It is very important in this life that you do not tarnish other people's reputations. It is easy, even in Christian circles, sometimes especially in Christian circles, to say things about people. You might say it in the form of a prayer request. You might say it just talking. But, but you say things about people that you don't know to be true and you have no right to be talking about. And it hurts their reputation. And it can have eternal repercussions on their lives. God does not like the things that these friends say. And a big part of that is that they are saying things about Job that are unfounded and untrue. And so if we can learn from these friends and what they do wrong, it's that we should not be people who tarnish the reputations of others. It's a really, really bad thing to do. Now the other thing that Eliphaz says to Job here is he says, if you will just repent, then everything will get better for you. Right? It's the same thing they've been saying. And so he just says it one more time. If you repent, if you just give your life back to God, then everything will get better for you. Job responds in chapter 23 and 24. He says, look, I wish, really, that I could find God. But no matter where I look, I don't seem to see Him. He seems to be avoiding me. But I wish that I could find Him so I could have a conversation with Him and tell Him about how innocent I am. And then verses 23, 10 through 12, he says what we will specifically talk about today. And he moves on in chapter 24 and, and he says something that is so normal, but still rather interesting. He says two things that seemingly just contradict each other. He says, I can't believe how good bad people have it. And then he says, I know that bad people don't have it that good. If you've read it, you were confused, right? I mean, chapter 24 is you're like, what? I mean, Job, I don't know what you're saying. I don't even understand what you're trying to say here. And, and as you look at it and you, and you think about it and you study it and you process it, it's just such a normal human reaction. When, when bad things happen to you, isn't it normal for you to look around and go, I live better than that guy or that woman and nothing like this has ever happened to them. Isn't it normal to compare yourselves to other people when bad things come into your life? We do it in the opposite way too. When something really tragic happens to a good family, we say, they just did not deserve that. And the implication is, is this. Somewhere out there in our world, there is a family who deserved this more than they deserved this. And so I think that Job is wrestling with this. I've lived a good life. I've been better than a lot of people I know. And so I know that 
that this is not what I deserve. And so he's processing this, this very normal human reaction to, to the loss of wealth and health and family and money and, 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 and all of those things. And he's processing and he's saying, look, I know people that don't live as good as I do. And they deserve this more than me. But then in the second half of 24, you see kind of the, the switch flip for Job. And, and he, he processes and, and he says, well, this is what I know. That ultimately, ultimately, even though right now I don't feel like I'm getting what I deserve, ultimately it is going to be better for the people who love and serve God. Job recognizes a truth in the second half of 24 that every person who, who seeks to live for God must recognize. That no matter how difficult life is now, no matter how hard it is, it is always better to continue to live for God. Because in the end, it will be a blessing and it will work out for our benefit and our good. In chapter 25, Bildad, his other friend, talks. He only needs about seven verses to say, hey, look, Job, God is great. You are a worm. Let's get on with the conversation. That's all he says, basically. He says, look, and compared to God's greatness and your worminess, you have to be sinning. I mean, you're nothing. You're just something that crawls around in the dirt compared to God. And so how can you claim that you are innocent? And then in chapter 8, we see an interlude that Jory talked about last week that talks about wisdom. And then we get back to Job in, in chapters 29 through 32. And he says, I long for the good days of my life. I deserved those days because I was living for God and I, I want them again. But in my current situation, even the lowest of society, the people who aren't respected and aren't honored in our culture are mocking me and making fun of me and looking down on me and calling me a worm. Uh, they, they are above me now. I long for the good old days when life was good. And then he says, if I deserved this, then I would gladly accept it, but I do not deserve this. And then it tells us that Job concludes his defense. It's over and it's done. It's a fascinating section of Scripture because we see this argument kind of build and it goes from name-calling to Job's emotional response. But in the midst of it, and I love this, Job continues to find hope. And he finds hope in a place that I don't think most of us would ever think to find hope. Job 23, 10 through 12. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Now, it's a fascinating passage because just before that, if you were to look just the, the verses before, Job says, I cannot find God anywhere. If I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the north, he's not there. If I go to the south, he's not there. If I go to the west, he's not there. I cannot find God anywhere that I look. And then notice the transition. But I know, I know that he sees me. And he sees the life that I am living. Now for a lot of us, we would, we would say this in a negative sense. God knows everything I do. That's pretty scary, right? But Job says it with the utmost confidence, and he says it in hope. I know that I am so innocent. My life reflects the glory of God so well that I am glad that God can see everything that I'm doing. Maybe the most humbling statement in the entire Old Testament, at least. 
I mean, think about that. Think about your life right now. Would you take comfort in the fact that God knows everything that you do? Or would that thought make you cringe? Do you find comfort or anxiety in the idea of God seeing every little thing that you do in your life? My hope is that for you and I, that we would be people who say, well, even when I can't find God, I'm glad that God sees me. Because I know the life that I live and it's so honoring and so glorifying to Him that I can put my hope in Him declaring me innocent someday. But my fear is that for most, even most Christians, if they really ponder that, that God sees everything that they say to their spouse, God sees everything that they they say to their friends, everything that they say behind people's backs, that God sees everything that people do on their computers, that God sees everything that, that people do when nobody else is looking, that God knows the thoughts that goes, go on in our brains. For most people, even those who claim to be God followers, I would say that that thought would not produce hope and comfort, but it would produce anxiety and fear. Job is saying, I live my life so passionately for God that I want God to see every single last thing that I do because He will know that I am innocent and that I have given my life entirely to Him. That's pretty humbling, is it not? And I think if we learn from Job before we even go to the next words, I I think that we just need to stop and say, Does my life reflect that type of thinking? And if it doesn't, we need to start to make changes. God's not going to fault us for not being perfect, but if we are not trying to live every ounce of our life for Him, if we are not consciously making an effort to do everything that we do for the glory of God, God sees it. God sees it. And we can no longer take comfort in, in the fact that God sees it. And so for you and me and, and, and everybody, it just needs to come down to this. Are we living a life that we can say, God, I want you to know everything I'm doing because everything I'm doing is for you, or are we not? And if we're not, then we need to begin to make changes. Even if you cannot see God, no matter where you go, no matter how hard you look, God sees you. And he sees the things that you're doing. For some, it's a matter of even giving your life to God. They go, well, I don't see God. I mean, if he's out there, he better reveal himself to me because otherwise I'm never going to even try to give my life to him. But here's the thing. God sees you. God sees you. And even if you cannot see him, it doesn't change the fact that he sees you and he demands from you your life. He is calling you to repent, to turn away from sin, and to accept the gift of salvation that Jesus gave through the cross. He's saying, I want you to take that gift even if you can't see me because I see you and you need cleansing from your sins. Job even strengthens this in the next part. Job says, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Now, there's some things that you and I know about gold. We know it's valuable, right? We know that. Gold is valuable. 
I would never have bought my wife a plastic ring before we got married. That would have been a really bad idea, right? You, you buy gold rings because they're valuable and it shows a sense of value to the person that you give gold to. We also know that gold in some ways symbolizes victory, correct? As in the gold medals that we give away during the Olympics. And so we know those two things about gold, but Job doesn't have those things in mind specifically. What Job has in mind is the idea that no matter how hot gold gets, you can never change it from being gold. Now that's a nice thought. It's a great devotional idea, right? So I, I, I wanted to know if that was true. I, I wanted to look it up. wasn't great at chemistry. My, my chemistry teacher was my favorite ever, but he gave us one point out of two if we got true or false questions wrong. And so it was a pretty simple deal for me, right? And so I looked it up, and, and, and it is true. Here's the thing about gold. You can change the state of gold. You can change it from a metal to a gas, uh, from a solid, excuse me, to, to a gas, or a liquid, that's possible to do. You have to get it really, really hot. But you can never change gold into anything other than gold. Gold will always be gold. And so when Job says, even when God has tested me, he will, I will come forth as pure gold, what he is saying is no matter how difficult life becomes, no matter how hot the tragedy becomes upon my life, God knows because he sees everything that I do, that when it's all over, I will still be gold. And by gold, he means a person who strives to live his life for God. A person who has given his life to God and strives every day to do the things that God wants from him. And so no matter how bad it gets for Job, he's saying, God knows. He doesn't say, I know. He says, God knows that when the test is over, when I've been heated up, I will continue to be gold. I want to talk about two types of fire uh, that come into the lives of people. The first one is similar to what Job is facing, the fire of struggle. And the, and the Bible describes uh, a couple of things as fire. And one of those is struggle and, and hardship and difficulty, the loss of, of loved ones and the loss of health and the loss of money and the loss of respect. Those are described as fire in the Bible. In Isaiah 125, it says, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. And so God says, hey, what I'm going to do because you're being disobedient is I'm going to allow struggle and difficulty and hurt and pain to come upon your life so that I can remove the dross, which is the impurities in gold, so that I can take that away from you and you can become more like me. Throughout the Bible, we see this concept of God removing our impurities through the difficulties and the struggles that we face. Now, let me be clear about something this morning. Not every difficulty that comes into your life is there so that God can purify you. If I told you that it was, then I would have to totally neglect the book of Job, right? Because in the book of Job, we see a man who is not being purified by the hard things that come into his life. No, we see a man who is pure, but that is going through this in order that God can show that there are real believers who follow him no matter what the circumstances may be. And so not every, not every difficulty that we face can be summed up in this, hey, God's doing that to you so that you can get rid of this or that sin in your life. But the truth is, sometimes God allows that fire to come into your life so that you can be moved forward in your relationship with Him. 
The Bible describes this, this concept of, 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 of burning flame coming upon us when we face those difficulties in life. And, and, and here's what happens. It, it serves to remove the impurities in our life so that we can become more like God. Here's a story called The Old Refiner. You may have heard it before that describes it pretty well. It says, He sat by a fire of sevenfold heat as he watched by the precious ore. And closer he bent with a surging gaze as he heated it more and more. He knew he had ore that could stand the test and he wanted the finest gold to mold as a crown for the king to wear, set with gems and price untold. So we laid our gold in the burning fire, though we fain would have said him nay. And he watched the dross that we had not seen and it melted and passed away. And the gold grew brighter and yet more bright, but our eyes were so dim with tears. We saw but the fire, not the master's hand, and questioned with anxious fears. Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow, as it mirrored a form above, that bent o'er the fire, though unseen by us, with a look of ineffable love. Can we think that it pleases his loving heart to cause us a moment's pain? Ah, no. He saw through the present cross the bliss of eternal gain. So we waited there with a watchful eye, with a love that is strong and sure, and his gold did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. So sometimes God allows these difficulties to come upon our lives in order that we can move forward and become more like him. Another story illustrates it too. One of the women offered to find out about the process of refining gold and get back to the group at their next Bible study. That week, the woman called up a goldsmith and made an appointment to watch him work. She didn't mention anything about the reason for her interest in gold beyond her curiosity about the process of refining it. As she watched over the goldsmith, he held a piece of gold over the fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining gold, one needed to hold the gold in the middle of the fire where the flames were hottest to burn away all the impurities. The woman thought about God holding us in such a hot spot. Then she thought again about the verse that he sits as a refiner and purifier of gold. She asked the goldsmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time. The man answered, yes. He not only had to sit there holding the gold, but he had to keep his eyes on the gold the entire time it was in the fire. If the gold was left even a moment too long in the flames, it would be destroyed. The woman was silent for a moment. Then she asked the goldsmith, how do you know when the gold is fully refined? He smiled at her and answered, oh, that's easy when I see my image in it. And so oftentimes God allows for these difficulties to come so that we can become more like Him. Again, not every, not every difficulty that comes upon your life is for that purpose, but here's the thing. Every difficulty that comes upon your life, every tragedy that strikes, can serve that purpose in your life if you allow it to. There's another reason, that, another way that, that the fire is described in, in the Bible, and that is as a test of our faith. I would love to tell you that I know how all that works out because I, I trust that God knows that I'm a real Christian. And so what does it mean for God to test me with tragedy? I, I don't know what that all means. But the Bible does make pretty clear that sometimes these difficulties come so that we can be tested and, and we can see if we are true gold, if we really are followers of God. Another type of fire that the Bible talks about, we can see in Hebrews 10:26 and 27. 
It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. In 1 Peter 1, 3-7, we see how we can avoid this fire. Speaking less metaphorically, Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Bible shows us this other type of fire, and that is the fire of God's punishment and God's wrath. And it makes pretty clear that in time, when God returns or we go to be with Him through death, that that we will have to face, if we are apart from Christ, the fire of God's wrath. Now, I don't say this to scare you. I simply say it because I believe it to be true. But the Bible makes clear that if we will give our lives to God, then we need not fear that fire. And so here's the picture that we get throughout the entire Word of God. The picture is that difficulty and hurt and pain, they act as fire upon our lives. But for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, who are serious about our faith in God, we need not fear it, whether it be in this life or the life to follow this one. Bryn and I recently finished a book. It's called Safely Home, and it's one of the most impactful books that I've ever read before. It changed my attitude. It changed my shopping habits. It changed my prayer life. It really, it really impacted me in very tangible, real ways. Bryn can, can attest to that. And uh, let me just tell you the story of that book, and uh, I'll try not to give anything away because I recommend that you read it. Uh, there is a man in America, and there is a man in China. The man in China is named Tuan, and the man in America is Ben, and they were college roommates. And after college, Ben had gone into a business career, and Tuan had gone back to China, and they had completely lost touch with one another. Ben stayed, and he lived the American dream. He started a family, moved up the corporate ladder. He was just under the CEO, but he had completely turned his back on God. He had divorced his family, and he was not living at all a life for Jesus. Tuan, on the other hand, had gone back to China. He had been turned down for a job as a professor because they found out that he was a Christian there. And he had completely sold out for the sake of Jesus, giving his life to the church and to serving God in that way. The story is about Ben going on business and staying with his friend Tuan in China and living together for about uh, three weeks was the plan. It ends up being longer. And, and while Ben is there, he is totally impacted by the life of Tuan and the way that he is living for God. 
And Tuan is, is serving God in the midst of persecution. And, and when Ben sees him, he doesn't even recognize him because his ears have been partly chopped off. And, and he just lives as though he's, he's had a very hard life. He's been in and out of prison because of his faith. And, and in all of it, as the story goes, and Tuan moves into prison and, and he's being beaten every day and he's struggling and he's not eating any good food at all and, and, and he seems like he's just hanging on for his life. He continues to serve God. And Ben asks him on, on one occasion, why is it that you don't seem scared? Why is it that I seem more scared about what you're facing than you seem about what you're facing? And Tuan's response is this. He says, my dad always used to say to me, real gold fears no fire. And so I fear no fire. And the whole book, he continues to have this grace and this this joy and this hope about him. And he continues to come back to this, this one statement, real gold fears no fire. And the truth is for you and I, when tragedy comes, if we are not real gold, then we should be scared. Because we have nothing to hope for. But if we are genuine, real followers of Christ who are doing everything we can to live for Him, then we do not need to fear the fire, whether it be the loss of a loved one, the loss of our health, the loss of finances, the loss of respect on this world. Because we know that God one day will take us into glory. And we will live with Him forevermore there in eternal perfection. And so here's the thing for you and I as we talk about bad things, evil things, horrible things happening to people who are good. The question is not about how good you are, it's about how sold out you are for Jesus. And if you are completely sold out to Jesus, then you can find comfort in it all, knowing that you need not fear any fire because you are true gold. Now here's the thing about, about true gold, being a true follower of, of God and how it's seen in, in our society. I think for many Christians who live in especially America today where we, we don't face much fire, let's be honest with ourselves. We're not facing what, what Christians in, in Middle Eastern countries are facing. We're not facing what Christians in China are facing. We don't face any of that. Our idea of persecution is somebody maybe laughing at us because we go to church on Sunday mornings. But here's what we sometimes think of as real gold. It's a person who goes to church and maybe is more active than the normal person in church. And they try to read their Bibles and they pray. Maybe they live a little bit better than everybody else. But that is not what Job describes. Job is not describing some type of sissy faith where you barely live for Jesus and you're better than everybody else. That is not what he's describing. Listen to his words in verses 11 and 12. He says, My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Job says, I do everything that God wants me to do. My life is a life that just follows the exact representation that I have in God. Every command that's uttered from His mouth, I take it in and I try to live it out to the best of my ability. This is not about being a little bit better than the American culture. Being pure gold is about being so sold out for God that you look nothing like the American culture. Job says, look... 
I just try to do everything God wants me to do. He doesn't say, look, I try to avoid the big sins. I mean, I'll tell you what, I'm not gay, and I haven't had an abortion. And I try not to lie most of the time. He says, every single thing that God wants me to do, I try to do it. You know what's stirring and just crazy to me? Job had no Bible. And we sit here thousands of years later with the Word of God at our disposal, able to read it whenever we want. And we just kind of mess around with doing the will of God. We know exactly what God wants from our lives. And we kind of play around with it. And here's a man thousands of years ago who said, when God walks forward, I walk with him. When God says to do something, I do it too. I want to know what he wants from me more than I want anything else in this entire life, even my own food. And I think, man, maybe... Maybe we could face tragedy better if we were as sold out as Job was. I think most of us, when we face the fire, we're scared. We're scared because we're not really sure if we're pure gold or not. We might see a little bit of gold in us. For the most part, we look at ourselves as just sand. Just a tad bit of gold in there. And so when tragedy strikes, it's really, it's just almost overwhelming for many of us. But you and I know people, right? Even in the modern context, our own lives, who have gone through tragedy and they've faced it like Job, just maintaining their innocence and continuing to strive to live for God. And what do we know about those people? Before they got into that tragedy, they were already sold out for God. And so they were able to come through that fire. Some of them still coming through that fire as pure gold, reflecting the glory of God all the way through. I'm not going to read it this morning, but, but, but if you need an idea of what it looks like to be pure gold, you can flip over to chapter 31, and Job just starts describing this life that he's been trying to live. And he says it all in the negative form, if I hadn't done this, but, but out of it you see this just amazing life. He says, like, if, if I hadn't, have fed everybody that I see hungry, then maybe God could blame me. If I hadn't done my best to take care of orphans and widows, then maybe God could blame me. If I hadn't done my best to do everything that He wanted to do, maybe God could blame me and I would deserve this. But I've done all of that. I've been a friend to people who had no friends. I've been a dad to those who didn't have a dad. I've been a caretaker to those people who have lost their husbands. I've strove my whole life to do what God wants me to do. I am not describing perfection here. Don't get me wrong and go every time I sin, I I just need to break down and cry and think that God's going to punish me. I am not describing that. Job says throughout this book, Oh, that somebody would forgive me for my sins. But what I am saying is that Job tried in every ounce of his life, every aspect of his life, every nook and cranny of his life, to live the life that God wanted him to live. And so when he faced fire, he could, with all the honesty in the world, say, God knows. God knows. Because he sees everything I do. He knows that I will come out of this as pure gold, reflecting who he is and what he has done for this world. Will you pray with me? Lord,
I'm just sorry for, for how cheap I make your grace sometimes, God. Lord, uh, we have, in our culture, and even just, uh, you know, around the world, God, especially Western society, we, we've just said, well, God's gracious, so, so good enough. But Lord, you demand our lives. You don't demand us to say a prayer. You demand our lives. And I am sorry for how cheap I make your grace so often, Lord. I am sorry, God, that there are aspects of my life that, that, that when I think about you seeing, I just I don't like it, Lord. I'm sorry, God, for saying things I shouldn't and for never even thinking about how you're looking, God. I am sorry, God, for being lazy, God, when you're watching. I'm sorry for just not caring enough for others, for turning my back on people who don't have enough, God, when you are watching me, Lord. I pray for us as a congregation, as a group of people, Lord, that, that call ourselves a church, that are a church, God, that, that we would just be filled with people. We would we'd be filled with people who are, are striving in every aspect of life to do what you want us to do, Lord. Let us not just just go through life half-heartedly, God, living for you. Let us not be part gold and part something else, God, because you 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 tell us, Lord, that that you demand every ounce of our lives. I just pray, God, that we that we would give you all of us, Lord. I thank you for the examples that you've given me in my life of people who do that. No, they're not perfect, God, but yes, Lord, they strive to serve you with everything that they are. Lord, I pray that we would be people who live for you. And I pray throughout our country that you would start a movement, God, that would just take away from this notion that we can mess around with Christianity. And you would start a movement, God, in our world where people are saying, I need to give everything to God because His Son gave everything to save me. Father, I thank you that we have your Word, that we can open up our Bibles, even our phones, God, and, and we can see what you say to us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, we would open it up on a consistent basis and we would search out more than our daily food what you would have for us, God, and then we would live it out, Lord. God, let us let us just move forward. Lord, let us let us try. And God, we're never going to be perfect until you glorify us, until you take us up into heaven and take away all the dross completely. And I know you know that, God. You're not sitting up there waiting to judge us or hurt us, God. I trust that, Lord. But I pray we'd at least try, God, to live fully for you, Lord. God, I pray that we would be people when we think about you seeing everything. God, it would excite us because you would, because we would know, Lord, that we are doing our best, our absolute best, to live the lives that you have asked us to live. Lord, I thank you for the cross and the blood you shed there that covers us, God, when we fail. It just it covers us always, God. Every day I'm covered by your blood and we are covered by your blood. And I thank you so much for that, God, for not just sending us to hell because we fail sometimes, Lord, but for offering your grace to us in those moments. But I pray we would try. Let us try, God, to live every ounce of, of our lives for you until you come back and make us perfect. In your name, amen.